Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradio.org/nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you chapter 42, the final chapter of the book of Eov. And now, in this final chapter, we get Eov's response to God. Vayan Eov et Adunai vayomar. Yadati ki chol tuchal velo yibatser mimcha mizima. I know that you are capable of everything, that is, you are omnipotent. No plans are withheld from you. Not in the sense of omniscience that you understand everything that's happening, but omnipotence, you can fulfill any plan that you decide to set into action, which agrees with God's two speeches. Who is this? And Eov is clearly referring to and criticizing himself, just as God did. Who is this who obscured wisdom with lack of knowledge? Indeed, I spoke in ignorance about things that were too wondrous for me, things I could not understand. Notice, however, in his self-criticism that he doesn't use the harsher word that God did, that is, somebody who's machshich, or blackens wisdom. He just says, ma'alim etzah, to make wisdom uh, disappear. In the end, Eov never gets an answer as to why he suffered so badly, why he lost his family, his possessions, and his health. What he does do is admit that he cannot understand everything God does in the world in general and to him in specific. Shema nav anochi adaber eshalcha vehodieni. Listen now and I will speak. I will ask you and you will answer me. You will respond to me. You will let me know. This is the exact same thing that is literally word for word, that God said to him twice at the beginning of both of his speeches. So it's hard to believe that Eov is challenging God in the same way that God challenged him, especially since God's request for an answer was clearly rhetoric. Um, Eov could not know the answer to God's questions, and that was God's point. So it doesn't seem that he would be right that he'd be using the same words against God. I think what's happening here is that he's quoting God, which means as follows. God, you told me the following. You said that you would ask me a question and that I should give you an answer. Well, here it is. L'shema ozen shimaticha v'ata eni ra'atacha. To the hearing of ears, which means audibly, I heard you, and now I see you. With my eyes, meaning I got what I wanted, not some indirect speech with premonitions and discipline, which is, I think, what Elihu said, which would not have satisfied Eov. And in fact, he never responded to to Elihu. Eov is saying, I needed to hear it from you, to get a sense directly from you. Now, Eov is not Moshe. I don't think he saw God with his eyes or heard him directly with his ears. But he sees him through the storm. He sees this revelation. He sees perhaps the instinct of the creatures and the way that God described all of that. He gets a sense of what God actually wants and why God, not why he does what he does, but that he has to do what he does. And because of that, I rejected, that is, I rejected my own words and I give in. Or perhaps nichamti, which can mean to give in. It could also mean to take solace in, to take comfort in. That is, if we connect it with the word al-afar ve'efer, maybe it means that I took solace in the ashes and the dirt. And that second possibility, not just of one of, of submission and giving in to God, but taking solace in the dust and in the ashes, um, means that 
he sees something cathartic, something restorative, that there's some small positive thing in the message that God delivers through all of these troubles. And he manages to take the fact that he's sitting in the ashes into heart that God is involved even if things are not working out the way he wants to. And so the dialogue ends with Eov accepting, if not understanding and agreeing, with God's harsh treatment of him. And Eov leaves off with an appreciation that God cannot be understood in human terms. The book now returns to prose, to its epic tales that it started with in the first two chapters, and it loses, and it ties up all the loose ends of the drama. Note also that the name of God switches back to Yud K Vav K, that is the personal name of God, and seemingly this whole tying up of loose ends was perhaps meant primarily for Jewish audiences rather than the more universal audiences of the dialogue part of the book. El Iov, Vayomer Adonai El Elifaz, Temani, Chara, Api, Becha, Vishnei Reacha, Kilo di Bartem, Elai Nechona, Kiavdi Iov. Following the Lord's conversation with Eov, the Lord says to Eliphaz the Tamanite, who was clearly the leader of the three friends, I am really angry with you and with your two companions because you did not speak correctly regarding me, about me, like Eov did. Now, this is different than the cause of Elihu's anger when he was angry at the three friends. Elihu, in chapter 32, he said he was angry because al-asher lo because they couldn't find a response to Eov, so what they did was vilify him instead. Here, God is angry because, I think, that they dared to speak about God as if they had some inside information, which they did not, and therefore what they said was wrong. I'm not sure which is worse, whether it was wrong or whether they pretended it was right or or imagined that they actually had some true knowledge of how God goes about his business. By the way, the word uh, a lie does not mean a lie to me, but it means a lie. Sometimes the aleph and the... Um, and the uh, and I and switch in these cases. Uh, and Eov, therefore, did speak the truth. It says that you didn't speak correctly as Eov did speak correctly, which means that maybe when Eov said he didn't sin, that was true, and that God was the one who ruined him, that was also true. On the other hand, it's a little bit difficult. I don't understand why he's saying that Eov did speak correctly, because God himself criticizes uh, EO for speaking in ignorance. Perhaps it means that EO did not claim to have any special knowledge of God as the friends did. And therefore he was just saying, based on my sense of right and wrong, I don't understand what God is doing to me. And that is a fair thing to say, even if it is an ignorant thing to say. Anyway, continuing on with the chapter, very long verse. Let's just take it a step at a piece at a time. So now take seven bulls and seven rams to Eov and offer them up as burnt as a burnt offering for yourselves, meaning that is you're going to use them to atone for your sins, and let Eov, which is cool because essentially he's demanding that they make Eov their priest, their leader, the one who will perform the sacrifice for them, and he will pray for you because it is to him I will show preference in order to prevent a terrible thing from happening to you, that is to sort of draw back on my punishment that I had planned to you as a result of you not speaking about me correctly as Eov did. Now don't be surprised that the repetition 
uh, the fact that he repeats again that they didn't speak correctly, but Eov did, because we saw in the first two chapters the style of this epic drama, this epic style is quite a bit of uh, repetition. That's just the way things are in this um, ec- in, in this epic speech. So Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildai the Shuchite, so far the Naamatite, went and did exactly what the Lord said to him. The Lord showed preference to Eov. Now, you might say that this is a bit ironic, since Eov himself and God himself stated uh, God in the Torah and Eov uh, here in the book itself says that a judge is not supposed to show prefer- uh, preferences. He's not supposed to be Lisa Panav, to lift up one's face to somebody, which means to recognize somebody and treat them differently in court. So perhaps we could say that that applies to uh, applying a verdict to say whether somebody is guilty or innocent. But perhaps that for the sense, the sentencing, that is how harsh the punishment is going to be, then extenuating circumstances, someone is tr- somewhat such as what we have here, which is um, somebody who is appreciated by God, who's trying to get somebody else off the hook, maybe God pays attention to that kind of thing and alleviates some of the punishment which would have been justly given. And in fact, maybe that's what they should have been doing for Eov all along. Instead of criticizing him, they should have been begging God to... Um, just lay off of Eov. Vadunai shavet shavut Eov bihit palalo baadre ehu vayosef Adonai akol asher liyov limishneh. Then God, then the Lord, uh, remember we're using the personal name, Yudke Vavke, then the Lord returned the captives uh, of Eov, which means everything that was captured from Eov was returned to him because he prayed for his friends and God increased double all of Eov's possessions. Perhaps what this verse is trying to say, what the author is trying to say, is that the act of being gracious and praying not only for one's children and one's friends, one's family, which one expects to do, but when one prays for one's enemies, that experience is a cathartic and a restorative experience. It says something to God about a person's selflessness and a person's desire to do something, the right thing, even though it's not always the comfortable and happy thing. Um, and therefore, God considers that a very nice thing indeed. Um, and how was this double re- reconstitution done? That is, how did you know, get back double everything. Well, we'll see. It's not as directly as you would think. God doesn't hand it to him on a platter. Let's continue to the next verse and see how Eov managed to double what he had in the beginning. And all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all of his former friends came to him and ate bread or they, they ate food with him, they ate meals with him in his house and they mourned for him. Literally, lanud means to shake their heads in sorrow. And they comforted him for all of the bad things that the Lord had brought upon them, which means they didn't try to explain to him that God didn't bring any bad things upon him. They agree, God did bring bad things down on your head. But instead of picking at Eov and trying to justify God, they just give him comfort. We feel so bad about all the things that God has brought down on your head. And they do something else as well. They give him one ksita a person and one golden ring per person. That's an amount of money, a ksita. And that's what we would call startup money. It's enough to get you back on your feet so that you can go back into business and do what you all did in the first place, which was to 
make good in the stock market or run a good business or whatever it is that you've made, whatever made him powerful in the first place by giving him a little bit of seed money, some angel money, Eov was able to double his original wealth. Um, the fact that a ksita as a unit of money is only mentioned here and in the Yaakov purchasing the lands around the Shem story may or may not be significant, either to the story itself or maybe to the date of authorship, but I'm not going to go into that issue. Vadunai And God blessed the later days of Eov more than his earlier ones, and he, Eov, had 14,000 sheep and goats, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of cattle, and 1,000 mules, which is exactly double of what was listed in chapter 1. And again, this uh, don't be surprised at this. This is part of the epic storing tale. I don't think uh, God or the author of Eov is trying to say that he counted them head by head. He's just trying to create a dramatic sense of the fact that Eov has great wealth. And he had seven sons and three daughters, which means he restored exactly what he lost in the first chapter. And he called the first one Yamima, and yes, that's Jemima, like Aunt Jemima in English. And the second one was called Katsia, and the third Karen Hapuch. And these names on the surface level indicate the beauty of the girls. Katsia is a spice, Puch is a, the eyeshadow that was used for women uh, of beauty to put around their eyes. Um, the, this idea of naming one, the girls is actually found in other epic tales in the ancient Near East, and it attests to one's wealth and more specifically uh, the fruitfulness and the progeny that, that one is able to have. And there were no women to be found in all the land who were as beautiful as the daughters of Eov, and their father gave them a land inheritance alongside their brothers. Now, does this show a change from the beginning of the story where it seemed that only the seven brothers had an estate because they went to one estate at a time? Uh, so maybe here he's trying to say he's going to include and treat his girls as as well as he treats his boys. I don't know. Um, is this an indication that they were so beautiful and so powerful that they deserve their own lands? Is there perhaps a hint to the story of the daughters of Tzlovchad in the Torah who are uh, demand a piece of property, although in that case they don't have brothers? So I'll leave this for speculation. And Eov lived after this 140 years. We don't know how old he was beforehand, so it's impossible to say at what age he died. And saw his children and grandchildren until the fourth generation. I guess that means he saw his great-great-grandchildren. Kanainahara. And Eov died a good old age. So that's it. That's the happy ending of this epic section of this book. Uh, Ramban says something interesting here, which is that all of this happily ever after is here to show us that God's test by that is the God's test of Eov, which started in the first part of the epic story in chapters one and two, was all there in order to make things better for him in the end. That is, forget about all of the discourse in the middle and the idea of theodicy. From just the story standpoint, the point is God sends tests because if people pass those tests, things work out better than they did before. In fact, wealth and power can be doubled and happiness can be doubled. 
So, and the Ramban doesn't say this, but I'd like to take it to the next level. If the whole book is on some level a metaphor for the, t- for the test of the Jewish people, to see if they would keep their faith in God through the harsh years of the Babylonian exile, and perhaps if the book is eternal to our long exile, 2,000 years in the second exile, which I would like to believe has come or is coming soon to an end, thank God, perhaps all of this test is simply to make things better for the Jewish people than they were before. Um, Elihu said that the tests are there just to bring you back from the brink, to return you to the proper path, to sort of set you back at the status quo. But if the Ramban is right, then the test may somehow make one stronger, make one more faithful, and in fact make us all better off than we were before.